ACDC Beyond the Thunder is about to blow up your podcast. With your thunderous hosts, Kurt Squires, Greg Ferguson, and Eric Cube. Are you ready? Get ready to turn up your brain control. It's a special back-to-school edition and a very cerebral episode of ACDC Beyond the Thunder, the podcast that dissects the whys and the wonders of this remarkable band who've influenced everyone from priests to politicians, professional photographers and footballers, and in today's case, college professors who just so happen to teach at one of the most prestigious Ivy League universities in the world. I'm your host, Kurt Squires, alongside my colleagues, engineer extraordinaire Eric Kielb and the very tenured Greg Ferguson. Ooh, tenured. Thank you. Thank you for that intro, Kurt. Well, I'm ready to go back to school. It's it's the fall here. What do we got on tap today? Well, as you know, Greg, I'm constantly being asked, why ACDC? What's the fetish? Why the obsession? Can I answer this intelligently? Hell no. But... <laughs> I do believe that there is this indescribable feeling, and listeners, you know what I'm talking about, where this thing called ACDC has some sort of magical healing powers, and no other episode may scientifically touch upon that very answer than this one. It's ACDC in the name of science. Science! So we did a little research on our own, hoping to make some connections between the science world and ACDC and found some fascinating stuff. For example, ACDC's Thunderstruck is actually being used to help the efficiency of a cancer treatment. Believe it or not, playing Thunderstruck while applying a plasma polymer to a cancer drug optimizes the efficiency of the drug. I have no idea what that means, Greg, but it's fascinating. It's science, man. (laughs) It's science. But if you're telling me that Thunderstruck could cure cancer then I believe you, so help me God. I really do. And another study finding that listening to ACDC's music makes surgeons faster and more accurate. Now, I'm not sure if I'm going to buy that one, but I did read (laughs) I read that on the internet. It's got to be true, right? It's absolutely true. Yes. And talking about healing powers, ACDC's music is being used for music therapy with one of the uh, charitable foundations that we support even. Now that I believe. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I mean, it's healing for all of us. As brain-shaking as that is, I totally believe it because I've used ACDC's music therapeutically throughout my life. But there was also this great story about great white sharks (laughs) responding to you shook me all night long, and if you want blood, you've got it, which is quite ironic. But supposedly, ACDC's music made the sharks calmer and less aggressive. That doesn't make any sense. I, I would figure no. if you want blood, that's going to make them even even more aggressive. I would think so. Well, I, I guess, you know, if any of our listeners ever find themselves in shark-infested waters, you know what to do. <laughs> but for today's purposes, Greg, nothing makes me more happier than seeing the members of ACDC, all of whom dropped out of high school around the age of 15 years old, go on to be studied by one of the highest-ranking institutions and the oldest in the United States. How cool is that? Well, let's not forget Brian Johnson. He did go on to receive an honorary doctorate of music back in 2014. That's right. Dr. Johnson, Dr. I presume. Dr. Johnson. 
<laughs> Pretty remarkable, Greg. Also, it's it's also remarkable that we were actually invited within the hallowed halls of Harvard to talk about ACDC. Who let us in, really? I know. What the hell were they thinking? I have no idea. But I can tell you what, <laughs> I'm ready to crack this skull open and let's start this episode right now. During this episode, ACDC Beyond the Thunder travels to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Harvard University. And we're talking with Mark Jude Tremo, MD, PhD, Director of the Institute for Music and Brain Science, Department of Neurology, Harvard Medical School, and Mass General Hospital. Man, that's a mouthful. Not only that, but Tremo's career continued at UCLA's Institute for Music and Brain Science, professor in the Neurology Department of the David Geffen School of Medicine and in the Herb Albert School of Music. He has received numerous awards for research and patient care, including recognition from the best doctors in America for seven consecutive years for his work at Mass General Hospital in Boston. ACDC Beyond the Thunder listeners, welcome to ACDC 101 with Mark Jude Tremo. Mark, let's start off with what you tell your students at Harvard. Do you jump right in with the complexities of how music affects our brains? Or do you first discuss your own love of music? And will there be a test later? (laughs) Well, I certainly tell my students um, the story that I grew up loving music and was heavily influenced by the Beatles, like so many people in my generation. And that, you know, was a passion of my life. And it was something that I loved doing steal time from school work to you know play play guitar and play rock and roll (laughs) Um, but actually music is um, a window or one can use music as a window into understanding how the mind and brain work so for a lot of my students um, at Harvard who were interested in things like neurobiology and you know these terrible words that sound awfully scary (laughs) if you approach it from the perspective of something that you're naturally interested in Mm -hmm. that you've been doing and have some intuitions about from you know your whole life of even just listening to music it doesn't have to be that you even play music but just being a music lover a music fan um, it really provides an angle on what seems like an insurmountable amount of information um, that can help young people learn about how the brain works. Right. And as a musician, composer, neuroscientist, you study how the brain perceives music and responds to it emotionally. For example, from birth, babies respond to music when they hear certain sounds. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's evidence that music can help lower blood pressure, uh, ease pain, and it's even been linked to calming Alzheimer's patients. But the music of ACDC seems to be cited alongside these kinds of stories again and again. Uh, Why ACDC? Can you explain your research as it relates to these kinds of studies? Most of the research that I've done has been in patients who've had damage to the brain because of disease. For example, um, epilepsy patients who had their brains essentially split in half to prevent the spread of seizures, so-called split brain patients or stroke patients who have a particular part of the brain knocked out. And the type of research that we do is to say, okay, well, if you lose that part of the brain, what music-related function goes with it? Is that part of the brain important for pitch perception? Uh Is it important for harmony perception? 
What about loudness perception? Do you need that part of the brain to do these things? Um, some of the other work has involved um, what is the left hemisphere able to do as opposed to the right hemisphere? How do the hemispheres differ? Um, some of it has been the electrical activity in the brain and also the responses of individual neurons in the brain to say consonant versus dissonant musical chords. Um, so um, music is just wonderful because the stimuli that you use, you can define them on the one hand mathematically or acoustically, but they have, they carry with them much more in the way of cognitive and emotional significance. So you kind of get the best of both worlds of kind of the basic elementary acoustic stimuli, but you get to look at tonal information processing if you want to think about it at a higher level. Wow, that's already going over my head. <laughs> well, let me bring it back to something I can relate to a little bit more, which is sports, and I know you can too. We spoke with San Diego Padres Hall of Fame pitcher Trevor Hoffman, uh, who famously used ACDC's Hell's Bells to get the crowd psyched up during the end of the game. Dissect for us what our brains are going through when we're triggered by that classic track. Um, athletes use music in at least two important ways. One is the emotional aspect, where music conveys such intense emotions, and not from necessarily from one individual to another, like in language, but typically involving groups of people. Mm -hmm. And the evolutionary significance of music likely has to do with the concept of group formation and the fact that humans needed to form groups in order to survive in the world. So um, you're, be, you're able to communicate with a lot of people at one time using the same emotional valence. And uh, athletes really can take advantage of that, whether it's individually or with their teammates having a team song or with the fans. Um, you know, doing um, Hell's Bells when Trevor Hoffman comes. I mean, it, it's, it, it basically is a symbol. It's what's called um, a, a reference to a meaning that goes beyond the actual music itself. And the music of ACDC in that particular instance um, carries enormous significance for you know, tens of thousands of people at a time in signifying, it's a sign like a red light to stop, it signifies this is the end of the game, the game is on the line, mm -hmm. our best pitcher is coming out here, the all-time saves leader, and uh, you know we're gonna strike out the sides, get psyched. So there's an emotional aspect. Another aspect is a, the movement of music, the notion that um, you know, emotion, emotion is in the term. And music, of course, there is no music without a sense of flow or rhythm. And music has been used um, in many circumstances, the most popular being with patients who have Parkinson's disease to help with the initiation and coordination and speed of movement. And we've done a, a study looking at that. And, um, you know, sports requires activation of muscles and incredibly complex movements. Sure. So you're using sound to kind of organize your motor system and get it all set up and ready to do something like run very fast um, or be able to lift something or do something at a very strong level. Yeah. Actually, if you have a release of adrenaline or noradrenaline in the body, the activity of muscles is 
the strength of muscles has increased for a given neural stimulus. So it's not such a bad idea to be pumped up because your muscles are actually relatively stronger compared to when you're not pumped up. Wow. And everyone in the ballpark will turn their attention to the center field gate that will swing open and take a listen. Three outs away from being the all-time leader in Major League Baseball history with 479. Backhanded by the shortstop, Blum got a hurry, got him! Yes! 479! Trevor Hoffman has become the all-time saves leader in Major League Baseball history, and they're all chasing him. Although ACDC Beyond the Thunder is free to our listeners, if you enjoy the program, consider donating as little as $1 to the show, and 100% of those profits goes directly to the Make-A-Wish and Nordiff Robbins Music Therapy Foundations. If you do, we just may call you out on our show, like Mark Shea, Eric Minge, and Chris Engelberger from the USA, Mark Johansson and Jacob Carlson of Sweden, and Martin Weisholm of Denmark. We salute all of you guys for leaning in. If you want to do your part as well, simply go to beyondthethunder.com and hit the charity button before or after listening to each episode, and that's it. Thank you. We salute you. So there's obviously the euphoric side of listening to ACDC, that endorphin rush that comes with it, you know. But what about the flip side of that coin with psychological warfare from Guantanamo tactics to... Iraqi POWs to cult leader David Koresh on the front lines of Afghanistan. Uh, And most famously on Christmas Day in 1989 in Panama, when General Manuel Noriega was surrounded by U.S. troops and they blasted a wall of sound nonstop outside the U.S. embassy, which included ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long. Uh, Describe to us the use of that side of musical torture and how that affects our brains. Yeah, I'm not sure the band could even stand that. I mean, <laughs> during mixing, I suppose one has to, but maybe they leave it to the producer and the engineer. Sure. Um, well, there's several features there. One is that it's culturally dissonant. Right. So the music of ACDC for a particular subculture within Western culture is desirable. Uh, for other subcultures, in Western culture, and for uh, presumably the culture of a Latin American dictator, uh, is not going to be something that he would choose or prefer to put on voluntarily. So first you have the issue of preference, which we really know very little about. That's an interesting point because I did read where Noriega was an opera fan, so listening at high decibels to ACDC for several days on end. (laughs) You can only imagine what that would have done to him. No wonder he surrendered. We do think that experience plays a role, that what you're exposed to at a relatively young age influences what you like. Sure. We also think that it has a lot to do with ego formation. Um, It's not a coincidence that teenagers do not like the music that their parents do because they're identifying themselves as individuals in the world. And again, music symbolically is very important in terms of self-identification. So um, it's not surprising that he would uh, see this 
the sound as something that was uh, antithetical to his existence. Now, the second part of it is that at a purely acoustic level, regardless of whether you were playing his favorite music or music that culturally or for whatever reason he does not like, is the repetitiveness and the loudness. Mm -hmm. So uh, loud sounds, shrill sounds, you know, you could take the music that you yourself like and play it at a loudness that's very uncomfortable. And you'll get up and turn it off. Yeah. And um, even I can only take listening to, you know, the White Album for the 473rd time. So um, this is a phenomenon that a lot of Broadway musicians play with. I had the good fortune of knowing the guitarist uh, for Cats and... Um, sitting in with him during one of their shows and it was a big thrill for me and it was their 1700th show wow and they were miserable <laughs> I, I mean bet. i'm sure when they got that job they were ridiculously happy yeah and they were happy to you know ha be able to pay bills consistently for that long a time sure yeah but you've never seen an unhappier group of people <laughs> in your life I bet. than that uh, ensemble who was playing you know that show for the nth time so repetition, while on the one hand in short doses is probably a good thing, and part of how, why we, you know, why hits are hits and hooks are hooks, but when you do it for 24 hours straight, I mean, yeah. Um, now that's different from what I told you about was I had heard about teenagers who were um, drag racing in a neighborhood, and the um, the community group wanted to figure out how they could prevent them from congregating there and drag racing. And they went out and, and got a big stereo system and started blasting Barry Manilow. And apparently it worked, <laughs> you know. So, um, poor Barry. You know, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> That's hilarious. And for those of you keeping score at home, that was ACDC's rollicking Get It Hot off of Highway to Hell, which name drops Barry Manilow within the lyrics, uh, with tongue firmly planted in cheek by the one and only Bon Scott. So, Mark, your studies have proven that there is a cause and effect relationship with music. Or is that all just coincidence? For instance, what's your take on the Night Stalker and his obsession with ACDC? Co coincidences happen. Um, so I remember, you know, there's a case of Saxes of a, um, a man with a brain disease known as Tourette's syndrome with a lot of tics who's a drummer. And the only way he can keep the tics at bay is by drumming. Wow. So there was a lot of speculation about the relationship of his disease to his drumming. Well, there are a lot of drummers. And there are a lot of people with Tourette's disease. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to actually, it's an interesting hypothesis. There's no question that it's interesting. Right. You'd actually have to go out and look at the prevalence of drummers, the number of drummers or the percentage of drummers that have Tourette's syndrome mm -hmm. compared to an age, sex, education, socioeconomically matched control group. 
And you, otherwise you have no idea. It's a gee whiz, you know, wow, boom, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of a story. It's really interesting about Tourette's and the brain and music and blah, blah, blah. But unless you go out and do the, the actual study, you don't know whether it's a coincidence. And this is the same problem with um, this individual who um, happened to be an ACDC fan. Right. Of which there are, you know, millions of people around the world. And he also had you know, significant psychopathology. A lot of us in neuroscience, especially me as a neurologist, I mean, schizophrenia is a brain disease. It has nothing to do with your mother. It's because, you know, it's, it's kind of like Alzheimer's, but you get it when you're 20 and it's a different part of the brain. And it's a very sad thing. Mm -hmm. So when Jim Gordon, the great drummer, um, you know, said he was drumming to keep the voices away and then stabbed his mother 45 times and killed her. Wow. He played for Derek and the Dominoes, Traffic, Joni Mitchell. I mean, you name it. He was a great session yeah. drummer. That's a disease. That has nothing to do or very little to do with environmental influences. Um, and um, if you're going to blame, you know, a group that plays 95% hard rock, then what are we going to do about Helter Skelter and Charlie Manson? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, you know, right after Helter Skelter is George Harrison's Long, 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 which is one of the most serene, beautiful songs of all time. So it doesn't, you can't, you can't scientifically establish cause and effect on singular observations. There are individuals with um, mental illness who commit, um, homicides and suicides and there are and there are millions of them and there are millions of ACDC fans and here's one instance where the two came together I, I, unless you can prove again you'd have to go and take and, and get a decent sample we're in the middle of polling about presidential elections so we get the idea you have to go and get a decent sample size of ACDC fans then a match control group and see if they have a greater you know, percentage of a certain type of mental illness, or if they've killed themselves or others more commonly than, right. <laughs> than you know, other fans, and then let the data speak for it. But right. one case does not a hypothesis, um, it does not prove a hypothesis. Well, good, good. It's refreshing to hear you say that. Um, and actually, there's many of us out there who believe that ACDC's success has nothing to do with science or the brain. But as Malcolm Young might have said, it's all about the feel. It's the visceral reaction to the music. Um, as an MD, PhD, how would you explain ACDC's success? Well, there's always been a lot of interest in up-tempo songs. I think anyone who's tried to write a hit song, um, one, of the, um, one of the basic rules to follow is to write a dance number or an up-tempo song. Don't write a ballad, you know, don't write Hey Jude as your first hit kind of thing. True. Um, and, um, and then if you think about um, the, what, what do people do when they listen to music, right? So um, there's a large number of people who want to go out and be active. They want to dance. They want to go to concerts. They want to jump around. They're young. They have a lot of energy. All right. So... You know, you, t you go to sort of the root, you take your typical, you know, Beatles album as it was coming out, which sort of laid the groundwork for, you know, what, what pop rock 
has been for such a long time. And, you know, maybe one out of 10 tracks would be kind of an up-tempo kind of hard rock song. Right. Well, who's going to, you know, do uh, albums where all or most of the album is going to be the up-tempo song instead of, you know, buying that record and having to move the needle to that one track that actually gets you up and dancing, right? Right. So um, there was a real need to have a band that was focused on a particular shall we say, emotion? I mean, it is a style, it's a genre, it's a sound, but it's really an emotion, it's an activity. It's, it's really something that is very much, you know, f- you know, fast tempo. Everything is basically, you know, super fast or close to super fast. Mm-hmm. And everything's pretty loud. Right. And, um, and everybody's going to stay excited, you know, the whole concert or the whole time at the tavern or... Um, and, and they're likely in that instance to have a good time. Sure. Um, it's not unlike, you know, it's funny because the genres are so different, but it's not unlike disco. I mean, people were tired of, or, or a, lot of, a lot of fans don't like the idea that you sit in a chair, and this, by the way, is somewhat perverse, like, you know, 17th century men in wigs and leotards playing to the aristocracy who sit down while the music is playing is is perverse in the history of music and the world. Because <laughs> there are cultures that don't separate music in their vocabulary from dance and movement. So the idea of, you know, your typical sort of 60s music fan, whether it's a Grateful Dead lover or a Beatles lover, where you get the best possible stereo system and, you know, you dissect Sgt. Pepper's and try to figure out how they did it or marvel at it. Mm-hmm. That's not really kind of what music for many people is. It's almost like for some people a downer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't very natural. That's the, what, the way I, I love music that way. I love to listen to music that way. But it's not what the world at large and the history of the world has done with music. It's been a social activity and it's typically been associated with fun yeah. and having a good time with courtship rituals, right? Which means sex. Nice. And um, and youth. So you don't want to be in a room with headphones on. You want to be out having a great time. And that is how, how the Beatles grew up, after all, and what their initial albums were like. So ACDC really filled a void that had been left after, um, you know, Zeppelin folded and Swan Song folded and Hendrix died and so forth, even though Hendrix really isn't like that. And they also have, um, they have the British rock style. And that is different from the heroes of the British rockers, the American um, rock and rollers, who you know were were their inspiration because it it's a fusion, it's kind of a melting pot of British, Celtic, melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic elements on the one hand, mm-hmm. um, with on top of that African American elements. Right. So it, in many ways, it seems like the British rockers were able to, and this is my opinion, of course, um, but they were able to combine these motifs in ways that really captured at least American audiences and account a lot for the phenomena of the British invasion and just in general the success of, of British rock bands throughout the 60s and 70s. And ACDC was... You know the banner hard rock 
um, British band um, of of that time in the post glam era. Absolutely. You know, ACDC moved in and, and uh, captured that particular segment of that audience that said, "Hey, we really like um, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. Why is there only one song on the White Album that's like that?" And you know, can't we have more of that? And boom, here comes ACDC, and every track is, you know, gets you up and moving around and gets you psyched. So. Um, and they haven't stopped. Speaking of an up-tempo, danceable song, that's ACDC's Rain Shake. Little play on words there. Uh, Mark, do you remember the first time you heard ACDC, and how did it make you feel personally? I, I can't, I mean, it must have been in college because I was listening to everything all the time by that time, but I was so involved with songwriting and kind of my own thing between that and homework. <laughs> um, and um, and trying to get over having to to quit the football team. I mean, my life was you know, music, football, and and school, and um, and a girlfriend. So I didn't. And and I was so tired of playing covers from sixth grade. You know, or even younger. I did the World's Fair when I was in third grade. Did a Top of the Pops in the New York State World's Fair. And I was so tired of playing covers that um, I just had to start writing my own stuff, which started around eighth or ninth grade. That makes sense. And you're obviously a self-proclaimed Beatles fan, but uh, you once said music precedes language, which we totally agree with. Um, In fact, during the many ACDC Beyond the Thunder interviews that we've conducted, a lot of people have mentioned how ACDC is a universal language. Can you expound on that, Mark? A lot of the comments about music and language are sexy, but not surprisingly, it really comes down to semantics. And you know, what do you mean by music? And what do you mean by language? So it depends on your actual definition. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about communication sounds that can convey meaning and emotion, and we, we leave it at that, then it's highly likely that early humans, uh, like animals, were able to use their voices to indicate pleasure and pain, right? Mm-hmm. Or where something was, or what they wanted from somebody, or whether they approved or disapproved, without actually having to make these very, very special sounds that are unique to language, namely consonants, these syllables that we make. You really have to have a highly evolved um, vocal apparatus, speech apparatus to be able to do that. If you want to say that when a baby babbles, that they're singing and they're exercising their voice, um, and you can tell what they're feeling by their vocalizations, even though they're not talking, 
then they are conveying some meaning and emotion to you. And I just don't mean crying. That aspect of it, that what you're doing is you're hearing the pitch, how high or low it is, um, of how high or low a voice is, how it's changing, whether it's going up or down, how loud it is, how long it is. Um, that's basic information that actually is part of language. And there's an old saw that um, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which means that the way that you develop in infancy and childhood mirrors evolutionary development from you know, fish <laughs> to humans. Um, and so babies do babble and kind of sing and they have rhythm to their voices, in a sense. Not in the sense of a strict meter, but they do have rhythmic elements to their voices, and they're able to understand, uh, the and they're able to recognize the sound of their mother's voice as opposed to the sound of a stranger's voice, or um, they sort of understand when you're talking to them. Well, if it's true that you do that before you learn to speak, then from that maxim, it would follow that you were able to do those aspects of music perception before language evolved. But again, the caveat is that, you know, it depends on what you call music. If music to you means that it has to be structured and highly patterned and organized, mm -hmm. and it has to have a key and a tonal system or a rhythmic structure, then that, you know, then that's not music. That's true. But ACDC has played on most of the continents dozens of countries, hundreds of cities to millions of people, all who connect to their brand of music. So I guess the big question for you today, Mark, is why ACDC? Why ACDC? There, there's a lot of answers to that one seemingly simple question. <laughs> so um, I think if we take a look at one of their most popular songs that might shed some light on certain aspects of, um, of their music. And it by no means is comprehensive or meant to be comprehensive right. with their music. Yeah. Um, but um, the fact that the song is so popular, um, to me, again, for, even from a biological perspective, means that all the listeners get it. Okay. Whatever they're trying to convey, they don't have to know music theory. They don't have to know how to play. They don't probably don't even hear half the words. Right? <laughs> True. But they get it. They get the emotion, right? Half mm. of them in the in the stadium don't actually see the facial expressions. So, you know. So one of the issues is that. Um, so we're gonna get some noise here. Ooh, it's the rock and doc. He just pulled out the Marshall stack, ladies and gentlemen. Look out. This is great. Uh, you go to this concert, and unbeknownst to you, you start to hear... All right, so obviously it's the same plagal cadence. The timbre's different, the setting's different, the tempo's different, but tonally... So it's the same, but it's slicker. 
And now here's the blues note. So that American influence you talk about, there's the dominant seventh in G, um, or the minor third if you want to call it in D. So there's all of this European, you know, Regals. So they're snuck in there, this blues riff, and then you're back to the plagal cadence. And then you notice they end the intro and they go like it's the end of the hymn, right? And then you're going to get the cadence, but in spades, because it's done, Angus does it staccato. So they end it. performance of ACDC doing You Shook Me All Night Long, showcasing how it's really done, ladies and gentlemen. Also, thank you, Mark, for breaking it down for us. And I do remember Angus Young once saying that the nice little ditty up front was purposely put there to fool radio stations into thinking they were about to hear this melodic little pop number by ACDC, and then in comes this famous staccato crunching guitar riff which pulls the rug right out from under the listener. Truly brilliant. But backing up just a minute there, talking about ACDC using the plagal cadence to connect to its audience. You lost me there. What is a plagal cadence? Let me ask you if this sounds familiar to you, okay? Sound familiar? Yeah, absolutely sounds familiar. Uh, I get it now. This is a plagal cadence is basically a hymn you'd hear in church. That's crazy. I did not know that. I guess I got to get to church more often. A cadence is, um, is where there's a pause and you have a sense of closure or resolution, right? You get that feeling like things are, are have come to an end. Right. Right. Now, so what I'm doing there is I'm playing with your expectancies. Yes. And that is a very important part of the absolutist route. So when I do this, you're expecting something to happen. Right. That, Whoa. that evoked a whole nother set of emotions, right? I can yes, do that ad nauseum, right? Did not see that coming. That won't do it for you, right? No. It's got to be, and you implicitly know this. Yeah. Through passive experience. So as uh, songwriters or composers, whatever genre, 
the idea that you're manipulating the fans' expectancies throughout a song is a key part of generating emotion and meaning in music. And cadences are very powerful ways to generate expectancies. So you hear them, you know, end of Mozart. This particular one that we're talking about here, the plagal cadence, is also called the Amen cadence because it's very popular in Protestant churches sure. throughout England and Australia that at the end of every hymn, at the end of every mass, you know the mass is over, you know the song is over because in many of them there is this plagal cadence. Okay. Huh. And it ha it's a very kind of European slash British regal sounding, right? It's got that, it's not bluesy. You wouldn't say that it's really bluesy, no. right? Yeah. But it's very kind of European. That's amazing. So we hear this plagal cadence, so fascinating, or amen cadence, as you've called it. And it triggers as a response to millions of fans across the globe. How about when people witness ACDC live, where it's not just the music, but it's the schoolboy outfit, the bell, the cannons, the whole spectacle. How do our brains physically absorb all of that stimuli as your studies have suggested? Maybe pointing out to the human brain in front of you there to, to, to show us what happens where. Now, when you see red lights and flashing lights and you see a big bell descending and you see a grown man wearing a schoolboy outfit, <laughs> right? Right. That brings a smile to your face. It obviously Absolutely. It, it takes you out of reality mm -hmm. and transports you into theater. And that is the business of the arts. And I don't mean in terms of finance. I mean what is very, very important about the arts are their ability to transport us from the mundane, everyday existence and our memory of schoolboys to this sort of very surreal experience that's combining very familiar colors and sounds and images, but in novel ways right. that are very stimulating. So that is the referential route. And this part of the brain has a projection down into the brain stem where you release endorphins and dopamine and you get all excited and we share that part of the brain with you know, reptiles and lizards and probably dinosaurs wow. when they were around. Now, um, a very important part of this um, referential route is the um, sense of movement and kinesthetics that, that, first of all, you're moving and you feel yourself moving. And that's this part of the brain here. Again, it's separate from the auditory part of the brain. Okay. So when you start hearing a good beat, right, you start moving. You're not sitting there listening to ACDC like not moving. Right. Your whole body is moving. That's true. In time with the sound. So yet another part of the brain is being active in this portion here, in the frontal and the parietal lobes. Okay. And again, they have projections into these memory areas and other areas that project down into the brain stem and can lead to release of all sorts of chemicals, not just endorphins and dope, but you know, norepinephrine, adrenaline, you get your heart pumping, you get your pupils die. I mean, um, you know, 
you don't need exogenous drugs actually at in this setting to really get your brain jazzed up. Wow, that may explain why I can go to an ACDC concert sober and still have an amazing time. I don't know, Mark, talking about the brain is actually hurting my brain. So let me just <laughs> let me just round the corner with this one big question. If you had to come up with a thesis uh, statement for ACDC, what would yours be? Um, ACDC's probably caused as much release of, of endorphins and dopamine in the key parts of the brain as, you know, any band all time. Wow. And we don't need to get into the details of, you know, whose brains they are and why. The fact of the matter is, is for whatever reason, um, it's, it's effective and it's very, very, very hard to do. It is not right. something that's that um, because it looks easy. Amen. Um, don't you know? Like the classicists, don't don't mistake that just because it looks easy or on sheet music it looks easy, it, it's actually very hard and and quite complex. Wow! What a powerful statement to end an episode. A plus oh, and mind blowing. <laughs> For ACDC Beyond the Thunder listeners, I feel so much smarter now. I don't know about you, but we've dissected one of the greatest bands on the planet and hopefully finally understanding a little bit better why we love this band so very, very much. And Mark, if I were smart enough to be uh, accepted at Harvard, there's a 100% chance I would have taken your class. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's a little more boring than this. But now we leave you with the final pop quiz. If you had to distill down ACDC in just one word, what is your Ivy League answer? Rock. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast, all rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Although ACDC Beyond the Thunder is free to our listeners, if you enjoy the program, consider donating as little as $1 to the show, and 100% of those profits goes directly to the Make-A-Wish and Nordif Robbins Music Therapy Foundations. If you do, we just may call you out on our show, like Mark Shea, Eric Minge, and Chris Engelberger from the USA, Mark Johansson and Jacob Carlson of Sweden, and Martin Weisholm of Denmark. We salute all of you guys for leaning in. If you want to do your part as well, simply go to beyondthethunder.com and hit the charity button before or after listening to each episode, and that's it. Thank you. We salute you.